Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. My guest today has a background in wealth management and sports betting businesses. He's built up a residential portfolio from scratch, which now has over 200 properties, and despite him being based in Birmingham, his portfolio spans through Scotland, Wales, and England. He has added an asset management arm to his business, and is continuing to grow this side of his business through acquiring more lettings agents, and he's still made time to found a daytime property networking event that holds monthly events in Southampton, London, Bristol, Birmingham, and Manchester. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Adam Lawrence. Thank you very much, Rod. Um, So Adam, obviously, I think a lot of our listeners will probably have seen you at various events and uh, online, you're quite sort of prominent in in the space. So rather than kind of going straight in and asking you about your whole background and how you got into property, I really want to maybe focus on what is kind of your, your business model at the moment in terms of investing and why did you choose that model? Great stuff. Great question. Um, so I think I, I saw the real opportunity. But if we go back to sort of 2011, um, I had cut one accidental landlord buy to let. I had the house that I lived in and I had another buy to let that had been purchased sort of for family reasons, not as an investment. And I kind of saw what I felt looked like the bottom of the market in property. Things had stabilized a bit. It was tough to get financing. But the rate interest rates looked low, and they looked like there was a low roadmap for interest rates. And I remember at the time thinking, you know, two to three years, things will pick up again. Yeah. Obviously, that's not that's not washed out. But I thought this is a really good, maybe a once in a, a generation yeah, opportunity. Yeah. So stuff was cheaper, um, but there still weren't enough houses being built. The rental market had got very very strong, um, and I just thought, well, this seems a good reason to take this quite seriously. The cheap money side of it, the fact that the assets were trading at you know, prices that hadn't been seen for seven or eight years and obviously the direction of travel over the last 50 years in the UK property market. I thought, look, high yield because it, the low rates had offered a, a cash flowing opportunity. So high yielding properties in areas that had a good fighting chance of capital growth with a 50% or better chance of getting a working tenant formed my core strategy back then and it really it really still is my core strategy today. And you mentioned kind of um, the finance and easily available finance at cheap money sort of in, in 2011 some of our li- listeners who are the developers might be thinking oh it wasn't that easy to get finance but obviously you're, the, the finance you're talking about is mortgages really isn't it that, that's yeah. right yeah so term debt had come down to you know you were fixing five year rates at about 5% at the yeah. time which obviously felt cheap um, now it sounds really really expensive but the, the buy to let was easy to come by we'd gone through a big stage where you remember even resi mortgages I mean 2009 I was classed as self-employed I got laughed out of banks and building societies when I tried to buy a house with a residential mortgage um, but the buy to let space was robust you know mortgage works were still still are a big a big concern mm-hmm. and whilst the number of lenders had shrunk quite dramatically they were quite clear on the criteria so in those days they were, most of them were looking at £25,000 income from a non-property source, the yep. picky ones were were uh, were saying, but basically, effectively, if you had twenty five thousand on your tax return, you were you were okay, and that seemed to be 
quite widely quite widely available given how compressed the credit had become at yeah. the time. And so you talked there about the kind of tenant type. I, I mean, when I talk about residential property, I always talk about the tenant type, the location, and again, the, the youth class, obviously with residential, there's still a couple of different different sort of types there. But I think, am I right in saying that you really focus on your, um, your single let family home, so your three bed semi-detached houses type thing, and you mentioned 50% chance of working tenants. So does that mean yet yeah, you're more at the lower end, the blue collar workers, slipping into a bit of maybe DSS or universal credit as well? Yep. So, uh, I mean, I try a uh, 50% is on the conservative end. I do try yeah. and make sure it's more like 70 or 80, but I don't want properties in areas where more than half of them are let, yeah. for example. Okay, so I'll try and avoid those little concentrations of yeah. of uh, not, not biased against people who are on LHA. That, it's just a commercial decision thing. And is that because really. you feel that um, by the demand for home occupiers that, that that's going to help with capital growth? Or? I think I think that's that's part of it. I think you've got to look at... There are there are a number of different prices that go on. I split the... in, my, in From a strategic perspective... I split my understanding of the market into three tiers, really. The retail market, as in owner-occupiers buying and selling yeah. and staying for you know an average of, I think, 22 years. They, I saw a stat the other day saying people stay for in a, in a property that they own. Um, and then the trade market, so that's largely represented by the auction space in the mm-hmm. UK. And then the wholesale market, which a lot of people don't necessarily understand but it would be the space that the bmv traders and the we buy any home and the fast buyers operate in and then what you don't want to do when you're looking at refinancing properties is being refinancing properties in an area where there's lots and lots of trade or wholesale transactions taking place because if you look at certain areas of the northeast for example there will be a bricks and mortar value less than 20 percent of the transactions will be at the retail price And the other 80% are either trade or wholesale. And, of course, that massively suppresses what is the real value of that property. It's very difficult for the surveyors. And how how would you then go about trying to get that information of finding out how many are wholesale properties? I mean, are you doing things like looking on, I suppose, EIS and uh, um, those sort of uh, platforms so like certainly that, in terms of in terms of the auction stuff I will look at the essential information yeah. absolutely um, I, G, good, sorry, yeah, good, good, <laughs> good, good for data um, very much so and obviously these days because every single piece of marketing basically has a footprint on the internet yeah. if you see stuff that's traded at what looked like suspiciously low prices and then you can't find any marketing material you know that was a directly off-market transaction. Yeah. But then you have to also bear in mind that a lot of off-market transactions take place in properties that have seen the market at some stage. Mm. So you can unpick some of that stuff. And you do see prevalence in areas. I, I have in the past, you know, it's not a perfect exact science trying to buy all o- or high yield o- all over the UK. Yeah. So I have punted locations in the past and taken, I'll have a go at one. I've done as much from the desk as I can in terms of things like websites like Street Check are really useful, looking at demographics, looking at crime. Of course, the difficulty is, and we're in 2020 now, so the last census was 2011, so anything that relies on that data is potentially pretty useless. Um, But I look around at all sorts of different stuff on the internet, walk down the street on Google Street View, depending on where it is, um, will know someone in my network who knows that part of the country, and or will go there myself to have a look at it. But at this level now, one house somewhere doesn't make or break anything. Yeah. And I've certainly had areas where I've gone into and bought one house and thought, right, no more. 
there, yeah. that's fine. And the house itself washes its face, hasn't really made anything, hasn't lost anything, so it's sort of nothing ventured, nothing yeah. gained apart from opportunity cost. But then I've had some areas where I've gone into and then gone on to buy 30, 40, 50 properties there when they've worked out. So it's like big upside, very, very limited downside. Yeah, I suppose you're testing the... Uh testing the model and then and then jumping in and, and you know you know i think anybody listening to this anywhere in the country will understand that the difference between it sometimes is quite literally going around the corner yeah that makes a difference i bought a property once it was on the corner of a road we encompassed this perfectly on the one side all the properties 100 110k up north good solid honest semis all day very very quickly down the down the other side of the road they would descend into 50, 40 granders that you, you just wouldn't necessarily and, want to touch. And, it, and especially for the sort of listeners who are in London and the South East, trying to get your head around the fact <laughs> that you can have a street and, the, and on one side of the street it's uh, 100% uh, increase in the price to the other side of the street. Yeah, it's it's yeah. quite hard to get your head around, but certainly I know, especially areas like Liverpool, even some parts of Manchester and other, other areas up north, you... It is a big, a, a big issue. So it, it, you've got it, to know that that area. You, well. you have, but I think even in if I look at and um, just because the way my mind works, I do look at these things and I have looked at these things over time in my yeah. local area where I haven't bought loads and loads of property because I live in Solihull and it's quite low yielding because the capital values are quite yeah. high. But there's a, a famous road um, locally to me where the houses will be a, a million pounds all day. There's a road that branches off it where they'd be the same properties, but they'd be, say, 750 to 800. Mm-hmm. Then there's a road that goes towards a, a slightly saltier bit of Birmingham. Let's say it goes over the Birmingham Solihull boundary, and that's a huge deal breaker yeah, for the yeah, pricing. Yeah. And there'll be maybe 350 onto a road where they'd be 160. Um, so it, it can, I think those concentrations happen even in relatively yeah. high cap growth areas. Um, are relatively relatively salubrious areas as well, but doubling prices is yeah. obviously when when the average property is maybe seven hundred and fifty grand, one point five million in yeah. the other side of the road doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, it's obviously value yeah. takes a massive part in it. So when you talk about these high high yielding properties, and I think that. The average value is what roughly a hundred k. Yeah, that's my, my that's what I'd say my, yeah. my normal sweet spot is. So, yeah, in terms of full value. Yeah. So when you're looking at the at the yields, are you looking at gross yields? Are you looking at net yields? If if it's net yields, are you looking over a sort of period of time? Because the reason I ask is a lot of um, you always get the argument about right high yielding, low value versus low yielding, high value and the net over time and taking into account voids, maintenance, turnover of tenants, all these kind of different things. So, so I've kind of encapsulated this as I've gone on through, throughout the last sort of nine years and come up with some sort of ready reckoners, really. So I look at three things when I'm looking at purchasing. I'm looking at the discount, I'm looking at the yield, and I'm looking at the probable capital growth. Mm-hmm. And the way I've built my model, I just think, I don't know why you wouldn't want all of those three things working yeah. for you. So I think there is a, a you know, like in anything, that you can deviate from the average quite a lot. So if I talk about when I bought, I started buying in South Wales in 2016, very quickly after the referendum had happened, because I saw the market gap down. I had some strong contacts down there who could deliver stock at good value. Um, and I really liked the area. And I knew what was going on in Bristol. And I found out that the toll was almost certainly coming off the Severn yeah. Bridge. And when you put all of that together, you could buy in Newport at the time, especially if you had the right sort of contacts at maybe 80k um, for places that needed work. 
that at the time when you bought them would probably think it would value up at 120, 125 after works. The equivalent house, 22 miles away, I think it is, in Bristol, on the on that side of Bristol, was trading at sort of between 250 and 300k. So there was an almost a, an inevitable arbitrage element. So I got huge cap growth over the over the, since 2016 there. Um, great yield in terms of cash on cash, um, and I was able to buy them at a discount. That window didn't last a long, long time, but it probably lasted eighteen months. Yeah. You know, so I try and get it's cake, it's just cake and eat it stuff. Really, yeah, I suppose. and I think I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there with timing as well, because when these windows do open up, they don't open up for long. No, and it's like. There's never any prizes for being the first mover in property, but being able to ride a wave at some point is, think, is, is worth it. And it's I think, difficult to get there, isn't it? That's a really, really good point. I think, and I, and I know you say it doesn't necessarily last for a long time, yeah. but I lived in a world, a different world, years and years ago, where when I was involved in sports trading, opportunities might be there for less than a second. Yeah. So eighteen months feels yeah. to me like a lovely, lovely long <laughs> period of time. Um, and, I, and I do think that is one of the positive things about. One of the strange things that tends to happen is when an area has really moved up in the world, even in London when you saw some of the massive cap growth that was happening in the early part of last decade, it wouldn't necessarily be that prices would jump up 30% straight away. They might go 11 12% a year for three years, whereas really the writing was on the wall, but there's this trailing, lagging effect that property has where you could have looked at Newport then and said... These just should be 150 instead of 120. And instead, over three years, they got to 160. So everybody had a chance to... And the difficulty is, like you say, do you want to be the first mover? Probably not. But I think you want to be in the early adopter. Yeah. And that's where I... Very much that part of the curve is where I put myself. And I would jump off the wagon yeah. earlier, so I stopped buying around there. And, it's, and especially, it's because of your exit... You're not selling. So actually, it's not as important. Your exit might be to refinance, and obviously you want it, the market to be strong when you refinance, but it's not as key for someone like me who, who was doing more tr- developments to trade at a point where actually, yeah, we were first movers quite a lot of the time, and it didn't work very well because we were trying to exit, and actually we wanted to exit later. Mm. And so there was difficulty in that, and, um, and it, it was quite difficult for me probably because I'm very impatient, to actually hold fire for a little bit. And I just found that I was really amazed at the lag time between cause and effect on the market. Mm, So mm. when you had a cause, whether it was affordability, whether it was sort of new employer wages going up, things like that, and the effect that had on property to kind of hit the mainstream... I found that was always longer than I expected it to be. Yeah, I think I mean I've always I'm a big fan of being your own exit because of the certainty that provides. Yeah. So ultimately, all of my background really leads to risk management being a really really key part of what I do. And when you are the exit, what do you need to do? You need to stay liquid. You need to stay financeable. You need to keep your affairs in order. You need to file your accounts on time. You need to know what you're talking about. There's no variability to the market. I very much like when a develop, some bits of development make me very nervous because I think yeah. it depends where you make the money, how well, much there's you... Huge, there's huge risk in development, yeah. isn't it? But you can take some of that out by converting to let or building yeah. to let. Um, the only difficulty I have with that is ultimately one of the best things about development, the cherry that goes on the top comes from the new build premium. Mm-hmm. So if you hold the units, you internalise the new build premium yeah. and you then would have to amortise that over time. And that obviously affects your returns somewhat. Um, Because you do see 
you know, people talk about new build premium on the sales side, but you definitely see it on the rental side as well, where you might get six fifty for a unit because it's brand new, yeah. but at the next let, you're going to get five fifty, five seven five. I think again, we talk about this all the time, um, but for listeners, it's it, for me, it's return on releasable equity. Yes, and really, that comes down to if you've got a new build premium and you can liquidate it at that time and benefit from the releasable equity there, then then yeah, there's a big argument for actually selling. Whereas if you're not, and this is where, again, where you are in the country and yields come into play, if you're looking at rental stress tests in London, actually, to hold that, the rental, the, the refinance is going to be based on the mm. rental stress test and not, and it's not going to take into consideration your new build or, or not. So that's the, it. the capital and value almost doesn't matter. And that's a very yeah. dangerous thing yeah. to say, but I know exactly what you mean. And I think if you look at, I've, I've never really found any really sort of clear and cohesive figures on this stuff, but from what I can divine, a lot of the stuff that is new build will take about 20 years, and I'm talking in the provinces now, not in London. But yeah. and, 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 I think and in that, London it's around seven to get back to where it... To start to, behaving yeah, like something exactly, else in yeah, the market. Yeah, yeah. And of course I say that because I'm, I would go back before the credit crunch because lots of stuff, I bought some new build stuff that had gone, you know, agreed in 06, 07, went pop in 08, 09, yeah. repossessed, bought it in 12, 13, 14. Yeah. And you think, well, you know, you've got, you do get a little bit higher rents. You should have less maintenance, so that depends on the build quality. It's not always the case. Um, but I have seen those capital values lag behind a 1960s three-bed semi but the in the sa- same area. Oh, yeah, 100%. In terms of the growth. But, but the at growth. the same time, I'd argue, again, location-wise, you're talking about probably areas outside of London. Yes, oh, yeah. in that time, London, actually, the prices probably wouldn't have dropped that much, even though... No. Um, Obviously, in the in the crash, everyone thinks they did. The reality is, it was only about two percent of the house price that dropped. It was values and sort of refinance values and things yeah. like that that dipped. And so, a bit like the last couple of years, sales just dried up and there yes. wasn't any transactions. Yeah, yeah, volume just compressed. Like, and that's very true. Even yeah. if you look at the the HPI data in in Stoke, where yeah. I've done a lot of a lot of stuff in two thousand and nine, the actual price gap down was about fifteen yeah. percent. And the reality is that actually it was smaller than that because what was happening was a lot of these no money down artificially inflated gifted deposit transactions mm. were not real money at any point. So stuff was going on at 100 that was only ever paid 85 yeah, for. Exactly. So the real gap was a lot smaller. And people may remember the figures that were in the press of 25, 30. I think some were even reporting 40% price drops. But like you say... That was a value drop if you needed to liquidate. Yeah. It was not a, a true... If you could service the debt. The data doesn't support yeah. those drops being yeah. as big as, as they sounded. No, definitely. So, obviously, you mentioned briefly there your previous career in sports betting. I know you uh, were in wealth management as well. I imagine there's probably some transferable skills there to property investment. So, how, how did you kind of transition into property from from those, and what were some of the skills that kind of helped you helped you do that? So, it, it was a funny thing. I always had um, uh, a, a concept that there was money to be made by uh, betting on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the so we're going back to sort of the, the early part of the 2000s here, early days of the internet, and what happened in the betting space was betting tax was repealed because Tony Blair and Gordon Brown realised that the world had just suddenly got a hell of a lot bigger and a lot of the bookmakers started moving to Gibraltar and they were outside of the UK tax system anyway. So they repealed the old betting tax in the shops and online suddenly started booming at 
thousands of percent a year. I had a, a car accident back in 2003 that was quite a bad one and ended up not being able to uh, put any weight on my left leg for about eight weeks. It's one of the best things that ever happened to me because I then focused solely on some of these ideas I'd had. I had nothing else to do and I focused on looking at this uh, this stuff online and came across this concept of what they called zero risk betting or, or arbitrage. Yeah. So effectively you would back all of the events, all of the potential outcomes in an event at different bookmakers around the world and guarantee yourself a small profit. Um, so whilst there was a lot of bets being placed, there was no real betting going on yeah. because all that happened is you started the day with £100 and you ended the day with £110, let's say, for the sake of argument. Now, I then got an opportunity to go, and, I, and, and that was uh, something that I kept doing. Well, obviously, those eight weeks, I had nothing else to do. I did it as a bit of a hobby, but by the end of the eight weeks, I found a way to make myself a, a, a living mm. every day, basically, um, as long as I was prepared to sit in front of the computer for 10, 10 12 hours and do it. Um, I had an opportunity to go to Switzerland through a contact of mine. I said, look, I'm working out here in wealth management. This, you would love this. Come and have a look. I was in my mid-20s, so I was single. It just made sense to give it yep. a go. And they used my mathematical skills because that's the, the sort of the bit that I've, I've always been good at, I suppose, yep. since school, um, to understand correlations and diversification and building portfolios for people. So they trained me as a portfolio manager. I then also started getting a bit involved in, rather than just photos of me looking semi-intelligent in glasses, um, and then got involved in actually going out and talking to clients because they found I had a reasonably good way of explaining quite difficult concepts in plain English. Yeah, you're quite you're quite eloquent and uh, about about certain subjects that can be fairly well, complex. I think I think in financial services particularly is a broad brush statement, but I think a lot of people very deliberately try to make things more complex than they are to justify charging big fees for them I mean they, they say don't they in 2008 well, they don't want people to be able to self-satisfy themselves as a sophisticated investor so they can get more fees <laughs> by putting them through some sort of platform and that, that's, that's very very true and, and of course the, that's changing because free information is free yeah, and it's yeah. very difficult to keep a lid on it um, but very much at the time, certainly 2008, I remember 2009, I remember them saying there were only 20 people who understood collateralised debt obliga um, obligations before everything fell over. And then suddenly they got unpicked yeah, massively yeah. and it was found to be this toxic dumping ground of dodgy mortgages, basically, and stuff like that. Um, so definitely transferable skills across them in terms of a lot of it was about... You know, the, the the arbitrage side was framed as zero risk betting, but of course yeah. it isn't zero risk because you have to send money to bookmakers, some of whom are all over the world, some of whom might disappear with your money. Um, you've got to use payment processors. The banks were never keen yeah. in the early 2000s. These days, they absolutely... If you say to them, oh, yeah, I do some gambling, they are not interested <laughs> in you at all. Um, so there was, there was counterparty risk. Um, we used to do a, quite a bit of betting in cash, so they, that would introduce a security risk, yeah. operational risk, risk of people I was working with running off with money. I had a lot of bad debt doing that, mm. so that, that was... All of these things taught me an awful lot about business um, and, and the risk side of things. And then in wealth management, reputational risk, um, I, I left before 08, so I know that the portfolios I constructed lost about 6% in 2009, which, stupid as it sounds, was a spectacular yeah, yeah, yeah. result. Um, and I was very proud that that happened because I, I learned so much in a relatively short space of time about diversification particularly. And really how, obviously, I, I, I was meeting these people when they'd already got wealthy, yeah. so I didn't see them on the journey up to it. 
but it was really interesting to get into some of their psyche and then how we protected their wealth and, and how we went about it was also a really good, well, that's, good lesson. That's well. really interesting, that, that quick point. I'm going to jump in on a different tangent. So you, you talked about you you'd got um, your clients were already wealthy and you were looking at a lot of diversification. So, I mean, diversifying is, is investing in uncorrelated yes. assets. So Absolutely. one of the things I, I'd ask you then is at what point do you think is a good time to diversify when growing a portfolio because obviously you're creating wealth but at some point you need to make the decision right we've got this income coming in now we've got this capital values now we need to pivot and now we need to look at something uncorrelated because if a risk comes and takes this house Mm. of cards down we don't want that risk to take everything down so what can we now put in but there's a point at which is the right time and for you when is that right time Uh, that's a great great question I think I'll also sort of track back to something you said earlier about diversification and risk and and, and within property Mm. so I would partition that question into two parts diversification within property diversification without property and at the simplest level uncorrelated stuff is not that hard to find information on so there is a concept I'm a really big fan of called the cockroach portfolio Mm -hmm. where again it, it does this stuff doesn't have to be rocket science yeah. super complicated indestructible and you just yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah. that, that is the whole point of it yeah. we'll survive a nuclear war yeah, yeah. and for the last 35 years it's returned on average about 7% a year mm-hmm. and the graph of that is very stable and the 7% number is important because is 7% enough for most of us to sort of sit on what we've got yeah. and live the lifestyle that we want to live off the back of that probably not so then you come to them where your active talents are where you might be returning 25, 30, 50, yeah. 100 plus percent a year on capital you've got invested. And of course, it's costing your human capital, it's costing your sweat equity yeah, yeah. to deliver that. But the, the, the returns well, it's can reward be, versus risk and effort, it, isn't it? And it so is. If you want the bigger rewards, you've either got to increase risk or effort or sometimes both. A- absolutely yeah. right. And you've also got to, you know, it isn't just about the numbers side of it yeah. as well, because some of this stuff can take it, absolutely take its toll on you. And you make some really good points quite regularly about ISAs and mm-hmm. things like that and stuff that in the property world is not talked about enough because I think there's a number of reasons for it and some of it is just being in your own little bubble Mm. Um, but a lot of the bigger property training companies are also trying to funnel your attention completely on property unless they're selling courses about bitcoins and stuff like that (laughs) in which case they want you to look at crypto as well but uh, that stuff is very very dangerous because the people talking about it and teaching about it don't understand it at all mm-hmm. and it, it can generally lead to some some really bad outcomes so i think go you know how can you diversify within property i think you can look at multiple different types so you, you might be looking at buy to let you might be looking at hmo even if you're within hmo there's a huge scale yeah. between the bottom end of the market lha style universal credit yeah. stuff and the top end world-class professionals and then the social housing leases which might be hands-off and provide something different again now of course when you get involved in something like that your exposure is to the funding that sits behind it's who's underwriting it it. absolutely And, and how does society feel i feel that side of things is relatively robust because we've been through austerity exactly and they didn't yeah, cut yeah. that stuff but you can't I would never build a portfolio 100% of social housing I think, leases I think I think from my point of view and it's going back to what I said before is within property you've got location number one yep. and, and why your location is important really is it goes back to the wage growth and if you've got um, 
and then that goes back to employers and things like that. So if you're in Aberdeen and that location is very heavily dependent on the oil industry, then the, you can understand that risk. Whereas if you're in London, it could be the financial services, but also there's a lot of other employers out there that are keeping wages high. Um, then you've got your use class. So again, that could be retail um, is having a tough time at the moment. Uh, industrial is doing pretty well. Certain types of residential could be, could be doing okay as well. Um, and then we've got tenant types. Um, again, this is very broad, but in, if we go into commercial property, you've got things like blue chip tenants, you've got independent tenants of under three years um, accounting. Yeah. Uh, you've got uh, government-backed tenants, so that could be uh, charities or government organisations or compass contracts. Yep. You've got, um, again, uh, in residential benefit tenants, you've got uh, private... Um, uh, professional tenants you've got blue collar working tenants so again when I look at something it's it's you're you're looking at all these different types what are the risks that's going to hurt that if a risk hits all three then you can quite easily diversify into something that doesn't correlate with that through tenant through location through use uh, class I, I, I totally agree and I think trying to tie back together all that we've just said in the last five minutes what I would say is something that I absolutely unashamedly took from wealth management in terms of transferable skills and things like that is that ultimately in, in equities there are three types of risk ultimately. The risks that are specific to one company, the risks that are specific to that sector or industry, industry yeah. and the, the risks that are specific to the whole of the market. Yeah. And the phrase that I use is don't take risks you don't get paid for. So if all your money is in Marks & Spencer shares... Will you get a better return over 20 years than if your money had been in the market? The answer is almost certainly no. And also, you'll have a hell of a volatile time and you'll have some really yeah. bad days and some really good days. So you're taking the company-specific risk and you're taking the industry risk, but you're not getting any reward for it, yeah. realistically. And if you go back to the point of diversification, you need to be... If you're spending, your, your as you said yourself, your, your effort or your risk, your risk you need to understand as much as possible, at least at a basic level, how do you price that risk? I've had many people say to me, well, I've got money, I'd like 1% a month returns on it. And I say to them, well, the thing is, I don't need to pay 1% a month. Unless there might be projects where I would need to, because that would be the right price for the debt. Mm. But generally speaking, I can access wholesale funding at far, far cheaper than that. So why would I give you 1% a month? And then they would say, well, X gave me 1% a month and I said well how did that go and they say well he didn't pay me back on time I had to issue a statutory demand and he had to sell his Aston Martin to pay me back and I said well what covenant do you understand covenants and who you want return of investment not return on investment again it's something I harp on about all the time but it's a cracking Warren Buffettism you know and people forget that and there's serious financial loss from people forgetting that which is which is a shame I think that's fantastic points especially on the um you kind of touched on the idiosyncratic, systemic and systematic, which were the, the individual risk to a company or in this case to a particular asset uh, and industry-wide risk and economic risk. And I, think, I think that's so important for people to kind of get a, a quick grasp on. But at the same time, it's you can focus too much on that when you're trying to grow. And actually, if you're so worried about that and you're diversifying at an early point, you're, it's going to hinder growth. 
That's, um, that's true. It's, it's, that's it's, true. It's, you've got to, you, you, at some point, you've got to take a couple of risks, or you've got to put some effort in. You, you're absolutely right, and I think people you ha- absolutely have to remember because there are people who stand on the edge of the cliff mm. and don't do anything for twelve months, and in many ways, that is the most dangerous thing that you can do. So, in any small business, within or without property, there will be dependencies. Mm-hmm. The first one will be you, ultimately, as the chief exec slash all the th- everything down to the T boy while you're working on yeah. your own. Um, and it's important as you grow to see those dependencies. And that really, my, my experience and knowledge in that has come from doing a couple of different things and being a big a voyeur of business, I suppose. And then when I did my MBA, I learned a lot from big, big companies, case studies, which I found fascinating yeah. and tried to apply things that I took from some of those companies, which is super helpful. And, but, and, and at the same point, it's uh, people will look at, um, maybe a wealthy individual or a wealthy company, a company with a big balance sheet, and try and operate in the same way. And sometimes that can be an issue because how someone with ten million pounds um, in the bank is going to invest is going to be should or should be very different to someone with a hundred grand because there's different risk elements and things like that and what they can afford to lose and, and various other other stuff like that. Totally, so totally it's, agree. It's, it's, it's what sure Warren Buffett says, he says, you know, if you give me a million dollars in a year, I'll double it every year. Yeah. Unfortunately, I have 500 billion yeah. to manage these days and it doesn't, it doesn't work like that it's, at that exactly, level. You know? Yeah, so it's, it, is, it is very, very different. Um, we had Ranjan on the vodcast um, a while back and he made quite an interesting point about this when growing it's like look if you're looking at making sort of these big companies maybe make seven percent a year but you're not going to get wealthy through that you need to be making these 25 percent plus a year to be able to get to that level before you can that's uh, it totally correct so that active and passive difference is is super important absolutely um so talked about these transferable skills into property so once you're in property and you're building these portfolios how did the reality of it compare to what you had envisaged from the start so when you thought right I'm going to get into property I'm going to build a portfolio and then maybe I don't know two years in what looking back from from that point what did you think oh god was it uh, was it everything it was you thought it would be (laughs) I think I know what the answer to this one's (laughs) going to be Rod Um, so early days I did a few quite a bit of HMO um, because I was very much seduced into oh look higher yields and that's that's really good on paper they can look quite nice can't they that's it and actually I was I think lucky in terms of the timing because I'm always very as I said I'm one who gets off the train early and I might let it run a couple of years and think oh well could have stayed on but never mind because I'm on to the next thing that I think is the right, the right Nothing thing. Nothing getting off the train so, so HMO would be a great example of that for me. I got out of the professional HMO market in 2016 because I felt I saw the direction of travel of a few things. One was um, the quality of the rooms that people were putting out, although they were achieving the same or lower rents than I'd been achieving for four years in the same locations, which had me M- very worried. cushions and grey walls. And I'm, I have no taste whatsoever, <laughs> so that absolutely has to be delegated. Um, so that, that was one side of it, but the other side was the valuation office banding by the room, and I just didn't know where it was going to go. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to step away from this space. Yep. And I did, the, the reality of those HMOs at the time, so what I did was I did a bit of um, competitor analysis on the ground, went and I, I built, I, I uh, converted one that was near uh, a large hospital in the Midlands, and I went and masqueraded as a doctor to go look around what was very near the hospital 
and it was squalor. It re- I'm not I'm not over egging it there. Yeah. I could not believe doctors would live in these conditions, and I thought, well, this is going to be easy. I've got to knock out something that's clean, airy, light. Yeah, yeah. Got half decent facilities. Put an ensuite in. Goodness yeah, me, yeah. who would have thought of such a thing? And I ended up with a um, one five bed house that had three bathrooms in it, effectively, which at the time was uh, amazing. So I bought that for hundred k. Spent about twenty on it, a bit less than twenty to do the conversion. Those were the days. Yeah. Um, <laughs> those were the days. And I was receiving the best room rent I was achieving was one hundred and ten pounds a week, which I achieved. And, and as I said, when the beautifully interior design stuff came out, they weren't. They still weren't able to yeah. achieve those rents. But occupancy started to drop. It started to get a lot harder. The marginal difference was not as great, but for me at that point, it was the time and effort that was going in. Yeah. And I was like, look, when I costed that, I thought, this is ridiculous. So I moved that onto a social housing let, um, even though it was over-specced for that. They, they yeah. love it, of yeah, course. Yeah. Um, and it, it went there, and I, and I eventually sold that to an investor who I was very transparent with and said, look, it was an HMO, it ran for four years. It's got a social housing lease at the moment. You could. Get, he was desperate to get into HMO, and I said, well, you can, when the lease runs out, you can be welcome mm. to, to try and, and get it back up to what today's yeah. standards will be. Good luck. <laughs> and he still bought it, so jo- jolly good. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a key point, isn't it? Things aren't always what they, what they seem. And also, it's, it's markets change, and your product might not be able to change with that market. And, so. and time of, you know, I think one of the things about just, just I don't mean to pick on HMO, but it is a good one because you do see people put an awful lot of money into them and then the two to three years down the line is where reality really bites because oh, it already needs a, a re, it needs refurbs, a constant, constant level yeah. of refurbs to stay up to this standard and how economically viable that is, I, I have my question yes, marks. Yeah. But I've, I've certainly felt the same. That doesn't mean that doesn't happen in single lets because I've felt that pain in certain areas of the country, like some parts of South Wales, you find a lot of single skin ground floor extensions that if you don't batten them out, put the insulation in, do the rest of it or render or both you're going to have weather issues um, and over time you think oh well a couple of years down the line but having said that when you bought them at a good discount who cares you've got you've got it's just annoying when you've already revalued it and you think I'm adding value here and I've already refinanced it but there we go it's a long term though isn't it it is what do you think many people don't consider them when they might have already got quite a few units maybe I don't know 10 to 20 units Mm. And then they're trying to scale up again to maybe 50, 100 units. What what do you think is something that maybe they don't think about that you felt has mm. been an issue and you've had to overcome? So, and I think this will vary for people's level of business experience and where they've come from. If they're just, first thing they've ever done is property mm-hmm. or if they've grown a business that's needed staff. Because one of the hardest things, especially when you're on the more entrepreneurial side, is delegating stuff. Mm. So you will realise that you're 15 to 20 units, you may well be everything, every, all things to all men. Yeah. Um, and therefore, you're the best paid cleaner, property manager, whatever, whatever, in, in, the, in the world. But the reality is those tasks you could outsource for £10 an hour, your time is worth hundreds or, or potentially thousands if you're good at doing deals. So you're not spending your time in the best way. Yeah. But... When you bring in those people, whether you outsource it or whether you bring them in as PAYE, they will not do it to your standard to start with. And it took me about two years to come around to the fact that actually that wasn't such a bad thing. I needed to get on with it, otherwise I wasn't going to move on in scaling something. And guess what? Sometimes they're better at stuff than you are. 
because sometimes there's stuff that you think, oh, I would, oh, I would have done that. That's really good. You know, yeah. I'm really, really impressed. So it's just accept the acceptance of. I'm not saying you should accept substandard stuff, but you've got to understand if you bring someone in at minimum yeah. wage or, or a, a suppress that they aren't going to be the rainmaker that you you may you may be and the al- deal maker you are that you know. And also, they might not be as passionate as because it's you've grown this from absolutely, ground up. Absolutely, so, yeah, yeah. So you know, a big thing so as staff, I've, as for a, people. So it's yeah. a big one, and as as I brought people on board, I mean, the number one thing that I've tried to do is make sure there's a cultural fit and their mm-hmm. values are right. And I'm a huge believer in that side of things because ultimately, attitude is a competency, mm. and learned behaviours can be as strong as natural talents or stronger. But if they can buy into something and they can see what's going on, and that doesn't some, sometimes it means I've given bits and bobs of equity incentives and long term incentives away. Um, sometimes people haven't wanted that, and it can be monetary or non monetary, yeah. and you get to see very very quickly because in this game it, it is volatile. So on some days the chips are down. We've just had a couple of massive storms across the UK. You know that puts pressure on the property managers. You yeah. know that. So it's whether you're willing to lead by example, put your arm around them, and get some extra support, and whether the team works together, or whether everyone just goes, "Oh well, leave that to poor old Todd in the corner," sort of thing. And you especially know. like from from your business model, where you're going for these higher yielding, lower value mm. stuff. Mm. You've got more units to deal with. You've got more tenancy agreements. That's right. To deal with, you've got more roofs to deal with in a storm. That's so right. So obviously there is going to be a bit more effort and I'd imagine you may need more uh, maybe one or two more staff than than um, a property portfolio of the same value with maybe less units oh I'm, I'm, I know I've got more staff than Ranjan for example yeah, even yeah. though he manages a bigger portfolio and yeah. there's no no doubt that that's the case absolutely and that is one of the things that you have to consider but then of course I run my business in the Midlands rather than in London course, so yeah. there's a there's a differential yeah, yeah, there as yeah. well and one of the problems if you like I think with the London talent pool is sometimes it's so talented and it's in this cycle of I'm going to move on every 18 months yes. to two years yeah. whereas my guys I've tried to ensure that they're well remunerated financially and non-financially they're well looked after and they feel that they can stay for the long term because recruiting and changing it when you bring someone into an office of 12 stupid obvious thing to say but you bring one person into an office of 12 people that's 12 new relationships that need to be formed it's much easier when they've only got to form three relationships yeah. and you can see and you, you inevitably get oh x doesn't get along with y well you guys we've got to suck this up and be bigger about it yeah. and make sure everybody puts the effort in to do that because there aren't any bad apples in my team i know that for sure it's just that personality management can sometimes get in the way but, a little bit but that so i mean that that brings us very nicely onto the next next kind of point which was about obviously you scaling quickly and efficiently and i because of knowing you i know that you're kind of the master of joint ventures <laughs> and working with people and and that's kind of it shows in what you've just said you're very very good at managing relationships and how, I mean, what are the challenges? And you kind of touched on it with staff, but what are the challenges with other types of business relationships and managing all those different relationships from uh, JV partners, from staff bringing them into as equity partners, things like that, um, investors? How, how do you manage all these business relationships and what tips would you give people? Right, so I think, again, this is important to go back to when I didn't have all of these JV partners and yep. stuff to try and relate it to people. And I would say one of the things I'm very cognizant of, and I have been from the beginning, is conflict of interest. Mm. So if you're going to bring in another partner to do something else, you want to make sure that it doesn't impact the relationships you've already got. 
and and I also think you want to make sure that everything drives in the same direction. So ultimately, if you have, for example, co-founded a property network and and a community that is spreading all over the country, like Pip, then it needs to be congruent with the other things that you're doing. I'm very active. I want actively want people to do business with, to find deals, to sell deals, to to yeah. all, all sorts of things that are going on, and it all pushes in the same direction. It's not nothing's working against mm. itself. Um, once you have a part, and and I, I was I was inspired to go down the route of having multiple partners because someone sat in front of me who who as opinion a consultant whose opinion I respect very much about six years ago, and at the time I had one main thunder mm. and we had a couple of vehicles together, um, and he said, well, what happens if he goes under a bus? You know, and it's not not even just key man insurance or stuff yeah, yeah. like that. You, you know, your so the well's yeah. dry, and I thought, well. So I'll diversify across mm-hmm. partners, mm-hmm. and what we'll do is we'll have rigid strategies of what we will and won't do. And I've had people come to me over the years, and, and, and I think part of it is, I suppose, having a certain level of, of success, I guess, and having a bit of confidence to say no to people. I've had people come to me and say, right, I want to buy all your partners out. And I, I very plainly have said to them, why would I do that? It's a deliberate strategy from my end to manage the risk. Now, there's something we can do together but if that doesn't work for you and you're worried that I'm going to be doing other things, yeah. we have to shake hands and move on. Which so is I think like with debt, not having all your debt with one bank. On, on, on uh, which is, which yeah. is critical. And that's another risk you don't yeah, definitely yeah, yeah, don't yeah, get yeah, paid yeah, for. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think working with, and I think people tend to like people or things. Um, I'm a bit weird because I like things if they're mathematical, but I love people and I love... Yeah. And I worked on my own doing some of the zero-risk arbitrage yeah. stuff for, for a couple of years. And I, it, it was fine, but it was very much coal-faced. There's zero strategy <laughs> input. It was very little personal input. Yeah. And, and I hated that bit of it, yeah. I'm not going to lie. So when I could bring people in, I, I, I loved that. So that's a kind of natural thing. If you don't like people, you're going to outsource stuff. And I think that you, you need to accept that. You are what you are. It's not right or wrong, really. Yeah, yeah. But you want everybody to be adding a net positive to your mood, to your demeanour, as exactly. well as to yeah, your business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's that's super important. So I think, you know, and I've definitely had JV, I should be really clear, you know, I've definitely had JVs that haven't worked out as expected and have so far been able to manage them effectively out so we haven't left with, right, we're really falling out here, we're going to court, we're doing yeah. this, that. We've never had to revert to the legals. We've always said, do you know what? There we go. Sometimes it happens. Certainly when we've done flip deals that haven't been easy, um, and because th- things it's, go wrong it's, and it's, it's how you react when it goes wrong that defines you as a JV partner and as a business person exactly. I think exactly I think Ross um, Harper who we both know well who was on the broadcast um, a couple of weeks ago made a really good point in that in this industry things go wrong all <laughs> the time like, all the time but it's about not getting like just being very pragmatic about it, looking at it, okay, understanding that they will go wrong and things will continue to go wrong, but just you've got to take them in your stride and think pragmatically and deal with them sensibly and not let it kind of get you down. And I think that's very, very difficult for people to to kind of understand because, I mean, I've, I've had something at the moment where we've had sort of a, a massive bill that we weren't expecting mm, yeah. that's come through and it's... And I, I kind of took that on board and just said, God, normally I, this really wind me up. But it's, yeah. look, there's not much we can do about That's it. it. Let's just move forward and, and keep going. Well, I remember I spoke to Ross the morning after the night the church went on fire. Mm. And I was like, 
are you okay? The first question I asked him, because he looked fine. Mm. And I was like, how are you so incredibly resilient? And he said, look, no one's died. You know, it's happened. It'll be fine. We'll move on. And I just thought that level of resilience. And I think resilience in this day and age, a lot of people talk about it because we tend to get towards this culture where the right to be offended is a, is becoming a bit of an issue <laughs> yeah. um, and trumping other rights like the right to free speech, for example. Yeah. And therefore that builds, I mean, you know, we've both got children. I'm very conscious and luckily at school they do things like resilience workshops because you can't just wrap them in cotton wool and give them everything they want because when they hit the, the world of work, it is going to slap them in the face really, 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 really hard and they're not going to be able to cope with it. So resilience, and I think any business, any entrepreneur would tell yeah. you that's the number one. You, there's no, you, either, you either learn or you win, don't you? That's it. There's no failure and that's got to be the mantra. I think I've always gone by the... Like I've, I've, on, my, on my list of KPIs, on the on the top, I have two words, and it's focus and grit. Yeah, and there's two things that I think they just need to keep going. Yeah. Like, keep focused, and you know you've got to be a bit gritty because things are going to come up. They're going to sort of slap you around the face, and you've just got to got to got to wear it. And, really. and I think that's a really I think focus is a, a, a real favourite word of mine in property because a lot of people will talk about which strategy to pick and this and that, but. Again, the, the, the training hamster wheel can take you away from focus. Mm. And I speak to a lot of people, and I think, wow, if I give you one bit of advice, you absolutely need to focus. But there, are, and, and when they're, the good thing about property as well is it's not necessarily everything has to happen on the day. Like we said, things can move quite slowly. And if that day the grit isn't necessarily there or whatever, that's the time to not feel guilty about taking a bit of time out and saying, right, do you know what, today I'm going to turn the phone off for a few hours, I'm going to get out, I'm going to do something completely different. And we, you said there that people come to you and, and, and you say you've got to focus, and that's because I think people people act as if they are their own sort of I don't know family office and fund when actually they're a lot smaller and they yeah. and they're looking at these principles which in theory are correct but actually if you don't have the big amount of capital and the big balance sheet then you shouldn't again be diversifying so early on and and, and that kind of brings me back to. I think we've already answered this about at what point do you diversify and again in property it's quite fortunate to look at okay well the different types of ways you can diversify and and get rid of risk but by doing it too early you are cutting your nose off to spite your face I think there's one more thing I'd say on that part of the strength of what I've been able to do is by compartmentalising trading businesses to provide sort of walking around money and then investment businesses and of course I see them with clarity because of my background in wealth management and stuff like that but we're in a great environment for a number of reasons, despite all the negative press. You know, one of them is those constant long-term suppressed interest rates. And the other one is a low corporation tax environment. So the compounding that you can, you can use if you're not having to pull all your salary from your investment co every year mm-hmm. is incredibly powerful. It's so, so powerful over time. That's what will make you rich. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big fan of you know, that trading business side, that is really, that. what are you spending your sweat, your human capital time doing? It might be a job, you know, oh, as, long yeah, as, you don't, as long as you don't hate it, um, ideally you do something that you love, but this whole sort of leave your job mantra and that's a success, it's like, well, I know quite a few people who love their jobs oh, yeah, yeah. and it'd be a disaster if they left them. And of course, what can happen is it can destroy the structure in your life. And I know people who work, I believe, harder 
because they work a job and then have property as a, yeah, a passionate yeah. sideline yeah, yeah. than they would if they just did property. So I spent, I probably spent two years focusing on being, I've talked about it before, the difference between being the shareholder mm. mentality and, and, a, and a managing director mentality. And I spent so long trying to focus and pull myself out of business and just look at the overarching investment and shareholding. And then I realized, you know what? I've got to be the managing director of the things that I'm passionate about and like and the things that I want to grow faster Mm. because then I'm in more control. And so I ended up coming back in to concentrate on more of the front end of the business and the things that I was passionate about and the things that I'm quite good at um, in order to grow that because actually I I wasted a huge amount of time and opportunity in doing that. Well, I suppose I, I, I came to the realisation after a while, but it's it, yeah, it's this whole idea of leave your job and you, what you're really doing is you're creating a new job for yourself. But as long as you enjoy it and yeah. like, you're excited to get out of bed at 5am and come and do an interview on the podcast and things like that. <laughs> 4.30 uh, yeah, for reference, 4.30. Yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> no, I absolutely agree. And I think we, we have many chuckles, I dare say, with people who are in property who say, yeah, I remember the good old days when it, it, Christmas you know, was only a couple of months ago. And, you know, the days when people say, oh, I'm having two weeks off for Christmas. And you just laugh and you think, yeah, I remember when that was the case. But that's the nature of the sacrifices that you have to make um, in order to live the life that you want to live. But the upsides to it can be absolutely spectacular. So more than worth it. So going on to the asset management side of the business, then we talked about a lot about the investing side. So you own estate agents and letting agents as well. Um, So... Two questions related to this. Did this come about as a necessary evil of having lots of tenancies and lots of units and wanting more control over the asset management, or was there another reason? And B, you're still expanding in the lettings business and you're acquiring more lettings agencies. Why are you doing this? And do you think um, you would? Do you think you'd be doing this? If you, you weren't man- if you didn't have your own portfolio, right, great. So three questions really. Loads. Um, <laughs> I'll try and re- I'll try and remember them all. Um, the first one relatively easy because I remember with quite a bit of clarity being in 2016. Um, you know, stealing a, a good a good portion of um, my PA's time in another business um, and using quite a bit of my own time on the property management yeah. side. So I probably got to 40, 45 units. Um, some of which were very, very light touch, some of which were a bit more intensive because yep. there was still the odd HMO floating yep. around at the time, for example. And I just sat one day and thought, hang on a second. You know, I'd missed a deal. That that deal had 20,000 20, quid in it um, for me or me and my partners or whatever, and I was doing a £10 an hour job. And it was just a bit of a realisation of, hold on a second. So I approached this, and part of it was inspired by, by meeting Ross because it was early in 2016 when I met Ross, and he very transparently explained to me the businesses that he had and how they would push in the same direction. And I, I immediately saw a huge company which would have verticals that it would own very deliberately and strategically. And that's what I saw in Ross, even though you probably laugh at my use of the language of the corporate speak. But that's what I saw. And I thought, right, what can I get from Lettings? Best practice, because these guys must be the best property managers in the industry. They do it day in, day out. Business opportunity opportunity to get stock, um, opportunity to grow my network and have physical bases in different areas, all of that I saw a lot of upside into. 
went and got myself trained by a couple of different people who I, I did my research and considered to be the best in the game, um, who, who real walkers, not just talkers, the real doers of yep. the industry, um, and that added a lot of value. The, the one question it answered very quickly is that I wanted to acquire rather than cold start an agency. Because mm. that time I didn't even know about the tenant fee ban being in the pipeline yeah, yeah, and all yeah. this stuff. And I was like, oh, wow, I've really stepped into something here. But then, of course, my contrarian nature then sort of starts to take over and say, oh, look at all these people whose businesses are only worth 40% of what they were three years ago. Does this not mean everybody wants to sell? Surely this is a time to buy. Mm. Um, and, there, and so I managed to, I threw a couple of darts, really. I didn't expect them both to come off. They did. Um, one was an estate agency, one with no lettings. One was a lettings agency with very, very few sales. Different people, different partners, different strategic purposes, 60 miles apart. Um, and one of them has been particularly hard work, but it's working out well these days. The other one has just been a spectacular thing where we've, we've bought deals on the back of it. We used our SAS pension to buy our own office with very little money in it. I mean, it was, it was We'll fun. have to do a separate episode <laughs> on that because, honestly, it's one of the best deals I've heard but yeah but, we'll have to leave that for another but that's sort of, those are the sort of things yeah. that I knew could be sort of come, come out of those situations yeah. and of course in the fullness of time I then, then got involved with another absolutely great agent who independently we've been remotely managing hundreds of units around the country for some years Patrick for 10 years yeah. um, me, me for 8 years effectively um, and so it made very much sense for us Patrick was the first person and the only person I've really met says look Property management's not hard. You've just got to follow these things. Nothing, again, he's a bit like Ross in that bullets slide off him. Nothing bothers him. He's yep. not phased by anything. He just sees it and he goes, oh, that's a problem. I'll solve it. And he's seen some terrible things in his time Pat, as an agent. Pat, Patrick uh, messaged me after the Ross interview and actually said, I can't believe he doesn't like letting agencies <laughs> when he said he'd sold his letting agency. But, but that's why, and again, you go back to JV's yeah. what's important, like-valued people. Yeah. It, my, my, mine and his values are very closely aligned. It made perfect sense yeah. for us to team up. And that obviously offers an opportunity to go and grow a big, big lettings portfolio. And these things, I think, below 300 to 500 units, they're not very... And, and this is... Again, we're talking provincial, we're not talking central yeah, London. Yeah, yeah, but before, and you're probably better to look at it as quantum, but below that sort of units around the country, they're not really that interesting. They tend to be quite hard work. If you're not good with tech and systems, you will be up at 4.30 every morning. It will take you two days in a dark room to pay your landlords. It will be a horrible, horrible existence. Um, but many one-person businesses are like that, aren't they? But then at that stage, where you can then bolt on and layer agencies on top, where you can put 150 units in and it'll take you a member of staff or three quarters of a member of staff's yeah. time to do that, that's when you can layer on spectacular value. And of course, that's where the countrywides, the lowmans, the, 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 the big money was in the market yeah. pre-tenant fee ban. But of course, the, the, they didn't see the direction of travel, even though really there'd been a lot of press about that. And they were, some of them, really quite unethical in the fees that they were charging and they didn't see the direction of the mm. government even in 2015 when the government decides to attack landlords they didn't see the vote winning side of that and they didn't act accordingly that's why Countrywide's lost 99.6% of its share price and billions of wow. pounds of value have been destroyed so with those guys out of the game and with things trading at half or 40% of their, their, true, their value from three or four yeah. years ago yes the revenue stream has been wiped out yeah. in the fee ban yeah. but you let it, a letting agent an estate agent who only does that 
will will struggle. They need to have a USP. They yep. need to have a value proposition. And ideally, they'll have bolt-on services. Mm. And if they've got those things, or if you can bring them into the fold and bring those things, let's see agent who, who doesn't sell properties. I've met plenty of them. They refer them to, to someone in sales. Yep. Sometimes they don't even take a percentage. Instead, what if you've got a book of investors who you can say, do you know what? I don't even need to put this on the market. I don't even need to disturb your tenant. We've got five years worth of data on this being a good tenant We've got a list of investors who want to buy it. Obviously, we're going to take a fee for facilitating that transaction. And we keep the management. Now, you know, by putting these things together in a modular nature with these businesses, there's a a good business there. And I do do think it's uh, everything that I do, even though I might not be the property manager on a day-to-day basis, I want the, I'm thirsty for knowledge. Mm. I want to know it in in a level of detail that gives me confidence such that I can lead and inspire those teams as and when I need to. But luckily, I've teamed up with some of the best letting agents in the country who are you know, UK-renowned for their approaches, yeah. systems, and just how straight they are. And, and again, things don't, things don't phase them. The resilient, the resilient yeah, guys yeah, yeah. in the game, basically. So it's, uh, would I do that if... Would I, would I today, if I wasn't in property, go, right, time to buy letting agencies? No, yeah. absolutely not. But that comes back to the verticals and things pushing in the same direction. Brilliant, F- fantastic answer there. Um, so, I mean, I've got here and just another point, and again, I think we've probably already answered it, but many people find that managing their own properties means giving up more stress and effort in return for reward. Do you agree? Um, I, I, I would probably bore that down. I mean, again, it come back to people and things, don't you, yeah. really? And I am a huge believer in the fact that we all have to manage ourselves and our own mindset. And I do believe more and more these days we live in more of a culture where more things get diagnosed and we want to blame external factors. And that kills me more and more as time goes on with tenants. If you if you really broad brushed, I've got nothing against people who are on benefits. Um, and I think they tend to put themselves, especially if you ask them the right questions, into one of two boxes very quickly, right? I need some help temporarily while I'm looking for another job or something to do, or the government pays my rent, the council pays my rent, and that's what it is. And I'm not talking about the truly needy that are in the system. I'm talking about the people who are quite clearly, we get messages every day from prospective tenants saying, I won't pass the referencing because I get paid cash in hands, but I'm claiming benefits. It's like, well, you know, realistically, all we can do is report you (laughs) to to Crime Stoppers or whatever, you know. Uh, But those, it's very nice that people tend to show their true colours so quickly. Um, Funny enough, we've had that very recently as well. Well, we we even get people these days who who write to us saying like, um, if I give you like triple the rent, uh, it'll be a cannabis factory. Is that like quite openly? I'm like, well, I suppose you've got got with my your honesty (laughs) to to an extent. Um, So. I think that, that, that sort of thing is, is particularly resonates with me and is, is important yeah. to me. And I've drifted off the thread a bit because I can't remember the question. <laughs> I, th- I think you answered it before, but it was just about people having to give up more stress and effort. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, of managing their... And, and there are there are a, a rare beast who does enjoy yeah, managing yeah. their like portfolio. <laughs> well, indeed, but, but in many ways, but he yeah. still, he doesn't have to do the no, day-to-day, exactly. just watches yeah, over yeah. the... And Patrick thinks a lot like I do in as much as, right, we need to try something out. Do you know what we're going to do? We're not going to try it on a, the client's portfolio. We'll do it on ours yeah. first because yeah. we can stand at the front and say, we did this, it works, mm. 
it worked for us and now we, we roll it out for you. So I think that's a, a really important mindset to have. And I think, you know, you have to value your own time. And, it, and some of it, you're right in a way we've also already talked about when you delegate something to somebody, there will always be an intrinsic problem with agents, yeah. right? If your property is void and you use an agent, you're missing 88% of the revenue and the agent's not getting their 10% plus that, yeah. right? The 88% is almost inevitably, I mean, A, obviously, definitionally, it's more money, yeah. but it's also probably a bigger part of your revenue than the agent not getting the 10% plus that. Yeah. Now, You've unless... more to lose than they have. And it's their attitude towards that sort of stuff. And you can see the really good... They have transparency. They have an attitude towards... You know, my staff have a zero-tolerance approach to voids. It doesn't mean that we put... It doesn't mean we do everything perfectly all the time either, because yeah. I don't think any business does, but... It doesn't mean that we put any old tenant in. It just means we work really, really hard. We get it out there everywhere all over the internet, every channel we can, and we work hard to reference the right tenants to put them in because we know that in the long term that will work. And I think one of the things you sort of referred to, the reality of it and all the rest of it, and I think one of the upsides of building a big single-let portfolio is that over time you organically get these tenants who are going to stay with you for for 10 or 15 years. And I don't like boiling people down as assets because a lot of them I know them personally it was the days when they used to have my mobile number and they'll still text me occasionally and that's not very commercially minded or business like but I still quite like it Um, but the people that we've kept obviously definitionally over time you just do your job the bad ones organically will waste away and you get new bad ones but when you you, you know you build your intelligence you build your database you've got uh, you get left with the, the, the age stock has got absolute quality people in and those tenancies those tenants are assets they are yeah. from a commercial perspective they're also nice people generally speaking so it's a course, nice yeah. a nice thing really and that's a nice thing about the business where you've got say 30% of it which just runs along really really nicely and that is low effort great reward low risk I mean it's everything that you want everything that you want okay so another point which we have touched on quite a bit but it's a question I ask most people is in terms of one your asset management and two your investment business what do you think are the biggest risks right now to them and what are you putting in place to mitigate them and I know we've kind of talked yeah, about yeah, tenants yeah. and yeah. things like that locations yeah. things like that yeah and I think you know on the, on the tenant side of it really robust referencing and yeah. having the strength I think what's important in this game you try I try and buy from motivated sellers yeah. I try never to be a motivated buyer I would also apply that to tenancies and never be a motivated filler of a property. You cannot lose your... It doesn't matter if it's been empty for three months. We've got one at the moment that we're looking after for a client. We have very, very few clients because we don't have a huge glut of deals. But we have one and we're on the fifth person to go through referencing. Mm. And luckily, he's been great about it and he understands. That's never happened to us before. We never normally get past the first one because we know who we're going to put through. We've been to three. This is five. But I said... But we, we won't... Co- and if this person fails, we're not going to put them in. Yeah. And that is just what we're going to do because we don't want you and ourselves... It's a, it's a small problem at the moment. It could be a much bigger problem if we've got thousands of pounds worth of arrears by yeah, putting the wrong person in. Yeah. So that you've, you've got to sort of stay true to all of that. I think we, we touched on what got me into the game in terms yeah. of the interest rate. I think the interest rate risk can never be... Because any external shock factor has to be regarded as yeah. out with of your control. Exactly. And the way that I mitigate that is by using still a lot of the fiddly little packager lenders 
to stagger my drop-off points of my fixed rates. Yeah. So that so you, you're, you're not a portfolio lending where no, everything no, no. comes comes no. at once. And, and yeah. at a behemoth site, at a 1,000 properties plus, I would yep. see myself as a portfolio of portfolio loans, yep, yep. but I would still want exactly. six to ten lenders. Yep, I, yep. I think the only mistake I've seen some really, really clever people make over, over many years is that sole dependency on the bank. Yeah. And that can be a really, really serious yeah. problem. So I think, at the moment, we've probably got 23, 24... And I think a lot of people lenders. learned that lesson the hard way in 2000. And, and luckily, I learned yeah, it from yeah, them because yeah. I've listened. Yeah, yeah, so it's very nice to be able yeah, to yeah. learn it without yeah. making the mistake yeah. yourself. And But it comes again, it comes back to dependencies. Mm. And yeah. I've built those in the past when I've brought properties in. And I said, oh, this, God, isn't this, this relationship's great, isn't it? And it's like, yeah, it's one person. So... Anything could go wrong. We might fall yeah. out. We might do this. We might something might happen to them. Something might happen to me. There's no business. That's not a, a long term business, but it's something to sort of take a, take advantage of. Well, yeah. you said it earlier. The window opportunity is open for a length of time, and you just crush Make it while the window's yeah. open. Absolutely. So I think the external risks and legislation would come into that. But I have tended to take a very um, positive approach to legislation and said, right, one more nail in the coffin. I mean, I will help get rid of the competition. I, I think the, the reality for me is the environment at the moment is as good as it's ever been. There's more demand than there's ever been. Yeah, yeah. If you're well organised and you're well structured, the, the credit, the term debt is cheaper than it's ever been. If you don't like playing to the rules, okay, go, go and do something else. But really, you should be quite proud and want to deliver because ultimately, even HHSRS and the 27 point checklist. What you've got to do is you've got to provide a decent home. Yeah. You know, yeah. and of course the tenants have got to play ball in that and ventilate it and do a lot of the annoying things they don't necessarily do. And you've got to try and educate them to do that. Yeah. But it doesn't re- doesn't really ask you for too much. Now some of the licensing schemes, I completely sympathise, and of course I've been caught by a few of them. I completely sympathise with the landlords who who have say eighty properties in Nottingham and then Nottingham goes right. Selective licensing, yep. except it's not selective; it's the whole of well, Nottingham. Well, we've got um, we've got a, a a block of flats at the moment which has come under selective licensing, and we have to do a license for each individual flat. And it's just like I mean, it's, off it. but yeah. but and, and ultimately, you, the proof's in the pudding of Liverpool, where it hasn't added value. Of course, the, the, yeah. the, the, the clue, and I I, I, I sympathise with the legislators and Section Twenty One being repealed because ultimately, unfortunately, as landlords, and don't myself absolutely. We have misused Section 21 because I've never known anyone use it as a no-fault. It's always a fault eviction. Yeah. It's just the quickest way to do exactly. it. And when you disabuse the system, that's what happens. And that's what happens with selective licensing because I've known little places where they'll do six streets and they've shown a demonstrable result from those six streets. Now, whether they just palm them off to the next six streets, I don't know. Yeah. Sometimes I'm sure they do. But it does seem to have demonstrable results. When they do that selective, is the clues in the name, over a whole area... It doesn't work at all. It's absolutely rubbish. It destroyed loads and loads of, you know, hundreds yeah. of, of thousands, millions and tens of millions of pounds worth of value and didn't deliver on the back of it because they couldn't resource up and they couldn't make it work. I think so. the problem with legislation is it just they keep bringing out new legislation without being able to implement the previous one. And, and that's the, implementation is, is the Of course, that, there, that's yeah. a big, big bugbear of, of all and we would much rather they enforced. I think that's a slightly dangerous one because I think when you bring something out councils will know who they want to target there's yeah. rumoured in the Midlands to be dartboards of certain people's faces <laughs> in the council offices they want to go after right now at some point they're going to get their pound of flesh out of those yeah. guys and girls 
And what do they do then? What do they move on to then? Do we move then down to... Because we have uh, a particularly proactive environmental health officer where one of my agencies is. Now, the agency have known him. The the agency's been going 10 years. They know him. They taught him what he knows about HMOs, to be be truthful. But because we engage with him, sometimes we get penalised because next door that's got 12 tenants in a four-bedroom house, but the landlord lives in Thailand council won't touch it because they can't seek redress from the landlord it seems or it's just too hard and that obviously seems quite unfair um but they will overreach in the same way that building control officers will sometimes overreach to flex their muscles and it takes your knowledge and experience to come back and say well actually that's not the regulations (laughs) and i've got yeah long and boring examples of that coming out of my uh, my armpits but generally it's just another thing you need to deal with and i think you come in with the mentality of I am listening. What can I do that's sensible? Uh, let's be pragmatic. Let's negotiate a bit and let's get done what you want to get done. Brilliant. So coming to the last question then, which I ask everyone, what is the kindest thing someone's done for you in business? Oh, the kindest thing. Um, I think I, I think probably, um, it, it pains me to say this, but I'm going to have to... I'm going to have to highlight Ross Harper again um, because the amount of knowledge that he has shared quite openly, the amount of time he has spent talking to me um, and ultimately bringing me forward. And now we work together, so ultimately he will he will benefit from that. I don't think that's ever been a master plan thing for Ross. He I don't know how he finds the time he does in a day, um, but just by effectively opening the books to me and saying, well, there you go, this is what I do, this is what I've done, this is how I do it. And a brain like mine just drinks all that stuff in and just thinks, wow, and then how can I apply? When I met him, I used to think, I'll just hold everything forever. Yeah. Because why would you sell They're not that easy to get. Yeah. They're a pain to refurbish. You might, why would you sell them? When I met him and he was like, why would you keep them? Why would you keep a property? So much he's just trade it on, let's just do this. And I was like, hmm. And then we got more towards a bit of a hybrid happy medium yeah. together. But I think... I think it would definitely be that because yeah. you couldn't pay. Had he had he billed me for his time, the bill would be seven figures, yeah, realistically, yeah, yeah. and rightly so. Um, so I think I think that would be it. And we are. Um, I'm coming along with you, Ross and, and Sue, uh, to Portugal in, in October, uh, where I said to Ross, I think I've been missold this uh, as, as as what started <laughs> off as a, as a nice sort of trip in in the sun. It's turned into sort of this intensive nine-hour thing that you're, you're getting me to come and come and help with. Um, do you want to just explain a bit about what that is? Sure thing. So I'm I'm very passionate about that because one of the things that changed the game for me back in 2016, around those times when I was talking about earlier, the letting agency and the the property management thing was starting to get on top of me a little bit, was going to a week-long business retreat out yeah. in Marbella, and it made me really stop, take stock really focus for one week without any other distractions because I had other things like everybody mm-hmm. does in their life. It's important to be abroad to be able to do that mm-hmm. um, and that's what that's what it's all about. What I underestimated vastly is the power of the network you create with those 10 or 15 other people that you're out there with yeah. because it's so much more powerful. That condensed nature of it's only a week but actually you build some incredible relationships and from that 2016 when I built some that are now working with on a business level partners in property hosts all all sorts of other stuff that's great and the chance to really have a really good strategic review of your business which you don't do 
I said to you earlier on, you know, when I was doing the arbitrage stuff, I was in front of a computer screen 12 hours a day mm. doing absolutely zero strategic thinking. And if you don't pull your model apart, I mean, you, you, you very kindly came into a mastermind that I'm part of the other day. And the bit of advice that you gave to me, it's a bit of advice I probably would have given someone else if I was listening to their situation, mm. but I hadn't seen it myself because in that situation, I'm yeah, at the coalface exactly. and you I haven't stepped away. Too, almost too focused on something that you can't... That's it. And it, made, it was a huge, huge game changer for me. And I think anybody who's thinking about it needs to think about, yes, of course, there's a monetary cost, but also there's a time cost of doing it. Um, and, you know, it, we're married. It's not that easy to break it to our partners that we're going to go and do something like this. <laughs> Trying to and, convince them that it is actually worth uh, well, it. <laughs> there, is, there is that side of it as well. But also, you, you aren't going to get a Ross to do, you know, one day a month, this, that and the other. Yeah. He can't make that level of commitment. But he can commit to an intensive week of doing it. He came along with us last year on, on one that we, we co-ran. And he really, really enjoyed it. He saw the value in it, yeah. and he saw that relational value. Yeah. And the relational, the network value, mm. the content, of course, has to be at the forefront. But one of the things that I completely missed when I went to my first one in 2016 was not... I went in thinking, right, I'm going to get this out of it. Yeah. And actually, everybody else's sessions were incredibly enlightening. Mm. People doing different things. And I talked earlier on about a hamster wheel of property and people getting confused with where they're at. And ultimately, you know, all of these strategies that the trainers sell you, they all work for some people who specialize mm -hmm. in them. It's not even really that one is better than the other. But until you hear other people who are actively got 20 SA units or got what, or development businesses or are doing social housing build outs mm. or all of that stuff, it is fantastically useful for you. Just understanding other people's challenges and then you can sort of put them into your You can apply it to your own yeah, business, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So you can probably tell, I'm, I'm super passionate about it, really, really pleased you're coming along. It's a massive coup to get Ross coming along. I work with Sue all the time, yeah. spend about 15 hours a week with Sue, going out to partners in property meetings around she the country. She does social housing as well. So she's got a great yeah. different perspective on things and she also, she's got a really nice way about her mm. and she also, unlike me, who will go out and say, hey, I bought 250 properties in 10 years or whatever, uh, Sue pretty much more hides her light under a bushel. Yeah. But she's also super passionate about helping people who are earlier mm. on in their journey and you're right, it's not always easy for us who are a bit further on to remember back and make it mm. relatable but to her she loves that she loves that getting someone from one to three or zero to one she yeah. loves that whereas I think I probably specialise more in getting from ten to a hundred yeah. um, just because the, the scale bits are the bits that I've all deployed in my in my business so who would you say that's um, your who, who would this be good for because obviously you've got Ross he does a lot of trading you yep. very good on the portfolio building Sue, social housing. Not sure yet what I bring. Maybe I'll just make. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm coming to make the tea and coffee. Um, but Two sugars, please, yeah. Rodney. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, well, I think we we proved last year with the makeup of people that we had. Mm. We had someone who it was incredibly valuable for, who only had two units. Um, but what she was doing, uh, if you if you split the model, it's an HMO based model. Um, she had an operating company mm. side. And she had the property company, property investment company side of it. And we helped her to, to pull them apart, to see that for what it was, and to assess the opco and risk versus reward and things like that. And at the time, it was a really, really critical moment for her because it was looking like there was going to be some financial loss and it hadn't gone very well. And I'm pleased to say that I've, we've been talking ever since. And I've been doing a bit of coaching for mm. her. And it's really, really turned things around. 
there's now proof of concept that wasn't there. She now understands who she needs to talk to on the prop coast side without going out and over leveraging yeah, to do yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, she's got a, a, a ton of value from that. On the flip side, there was someone there who had a bigger portfolio than me mm-hmm. and also is involved in the letting agency side of things. So a very close hybrid to what I've done. Been in the game longer than me, done it in a scaled in a different kind of way. Mm. Incredibly hard worker and at that level there aren't many people who can add value realistically mm, mm, mm. I think it's fair to say because they haven't walked that walk but when you've got the Rosses of the world who've run and inside and outside and what what does a rod bring to it ultimately mm. business experience mm. because the number one thing is that people have not got and are not applying enough business principles yeah. to property and this is a business absolutely. since 2015 George Osborne absolutely defined mm. that and if you're not looking at it as a business, somebody else is, and you're probably gonna. There's going to be something around the corner that's going to trip you up. So it could be for people who have got a big decision they've got to make. Yeah. It could be for people who want to road test a strategy. You might have sold a business and said, right, I want to get into property. I have probably two or three of those conversations a month, and they tend to find partners in property these days. They're experienced people, but also what they don't want to do is run around being their own letting agent and all the rest of it. So it might be that they've got capital to deploy, and it might be that they've got, and and quite a lot of people do this, including myself, they've got little piecemeal things they've picked up over the years, and they need to decide, am I consolidating? How am I going forwards? Should I be working with these partners? Sometimes people have got, we tend to have over the years, we've had people who've got certain situations where there could be a financial loss and they need particular help with one specific scenario and they need that private environment with some really good brains in there who are going to be very open and honest with them but knowing that it's not going to leave the room so it could be could be development could be investment could be trading co side attached to business could be letting agents could be we can cover obviously all of those bases sue has built a a 600 unit letting agency in two and a half years Mm -hmm. with a couple of business parts so she while she's constantly says slow and steady wins the race um, she actually disproved her own yeah. medicine there by, yeah. by scaling that so quickly and of course she's done that by building her profile yeah. Yeah. and just being herself really on Fantastic. social media so. so if people want to get um, in touch with you maybe about that or about anything else yeah. that we've talked about how can they contact you so LinkedIn's a great way to yeah. find me Adam G Lawrence so definitely stands out Facebook I'm, I'm reasonably active as Rod said we both moderate uh, the UK Property Traders Group which we're very proud to do so come and con- connect with me on Facebook or email me via adamxlawrence at gmail.com. So it's, um, my middle name isn't Xavier, but Adam Lawrence was taken. And don't miss out the X, because Adam Lawrence gets really annoyed with me. <laughs> Brilliant, Adam. That's been absolutely fascinating. Thanks so much for coming on, and uh, looking forward to uh, getting to Portugal in October. Me too. Thanks a lot, Brilliant. Rod. Cheers. Please join me next time for more detailed discussions about property on The Rodcast.